I want to invite you as the kids are heading out and you're finding your seat to open up your Bible, the Bible that you brought with you. Maybe the Bible that's there in the pew or the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app. And if you're opening up the pew Bible, we're going to page 741. We're in the Gospel of John chapter 3. And as you're finding that passage, let me announce to you, tis the season. Tis the season to believe. Tis the season to believe. Believe is a word that is thrown around a lot during these weeks of Advent. It's plastered in big letters on festive banners, decorating shopping mall parking lots. It's this focal word that captions so many Christmas cards and decorations. This singular word, believe, stands alone on holiday coffee cups, sweatshirts, and throw pillows, expressing the theme of the year. In fact, at the last service, we had like three people who had believe on their, on their shirt. This is the season. Tis the season to believe. To believe again. Sometimes we come into the Christmas season struggling to believe. Sometimes belief is lost. Adversity strikes us. Darkness creeps in and it lingers. Doubts begin to rise and eventually take root. But then as Christmas begins to descend upon us, you know, holiday cards and seasonal movies beckon us to believe again. Back in 2004, one such movie was a film adaptation of the classic story, The Polar Express. In this story, if you're not familiar with it or you don't remember, in this story, a boy hops on a mysterious train on Christmas Eve and journeys to meet Santa, a Santa in whom he doesn't believe. Encountering elves, reindeer, and all the other characters from the North Pole, this boy's doubts still remain unaltered. Spoiler alert, the turning point comes the moment he holds one of Santa's Christmas bells. Much to his disappointment, unlike the other children, he cannot hear it ring. He cannot hear it ring no matter how hard he shakes it. He cannot hear it because he does not believe. Shutting his eyes and intently repeating the mantra, I believe, I believe, the boy shakes the bell and suddenly he can hear its clear, joyous sound. At the close of the story, the boy's guide, the train conductor, played by Tom Hanks in the movie, shares with him and us all that is needed is to believe. This Advent season, as we return to this conversation, the Bible passage that's been orienting our journey to Bethlehem in the manger, this ongoing conversation between a man named Nicodemus and Jesus that we find in the third chapter of John, a similar word is given, believe. I'm going to read the whole conversation for us as I've done the last two weeks, but in particular, we're focusing today on verses 9 through 15. As Nicodemus is still scratching his head in confusion, and Jesus speaks of belief and disbelief. If you have those Bibles open, read along with me. John writes, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. 
The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's quickly review what we've covered so far in these last two weeks. Remember first that Nicodemus initiated this meeting. Being a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, a member of the ruling party in the synagogue, Nicodemus had it all. He had education, he had position, he had influence. Yet despite everything he had, everything he had going for him, Nicodemus came to Jesus, sought him out under the cover of darkness in the night because he was looking for answers. He longed for something more. And Jesus doesn't disappoint. He invites Nicodemus to see to experience the kingdom of God, the fullness of the works and ways of God by being born anew or born from above. You might remember as we've gone through this passage, these are the alternative and I think better renditions of the Greek word that's probably translated in your Bible as born again, born anew or born from above. And yet being born anew seems as preposterous to Nicodemus as the angel Gabriel's words once seemed to Mary when she was told to expect to be expecting. In fact, Nicodemus asks, we talked about this last week, the very same question Mary asked when she received her birth announcement. How can this be? Jesus assures Nicodemus, just as Gabriel assured Mary, such things are possible through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Again, last week as we talked about the real spirit, not just of Christmas, but of giving life, new life to all creation. Jesus tells Nicodemus he's looking for answers within the limits, the boundaries of the physical world, when the answers that he's looking for can only be found within the limitless possibilities and realities of God's kingdom, the spiritual world. But as you heard, Nicodemus still doesn't get it. He struggles to believe what he is hearing and so, as we heard, Jesus gently chides him. You are Israel's teacher, says Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Ouch, right? I mean, this is your livelihood. This is what you do. You're a teacher, and Jesus has just kind of called you out. But Jesus, I don't know how you hear this here. Jesus isn't really rebuking Nicodemus as much as he is teasing him a bit. He's leading Nicodemus to think through what he's outlined for him. And in so doing, he's inviting Nicodemus to press deeper into what is being revealed, to apprehend more than comprehend all of it. And I'll talk more about that later. Here in verses 9 through 15, our focus this morning, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about believing. And there are two things in this encounter that I want to point to that reveal something to us about belief, specifically, and this is important, specifically about our belief in the gospel and our belief in Christ. So here are the two insights that I want us to see in this part of the dialogue today. First, 
what we believe about God is to be a matter of revelation, what is revealed to us by God. What we believe about God is to be a matter of revelation, what is revealed to us by God. And number two, our belief in God is more of a process than it is a formula. Those are the two insights that I want us to pick up from. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to flesh them out one at a time. And then after I've fleshed them out, I think that we bring them back together and you'll appreciate what we have to take away from this message. Well, how can we live in response to this? So let's start with the first one, the first insight, which is what we believe about God is to be a matter of revelation. It's to be a matter of what is revealed to us by God. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. A recurring theme, not just here in chapter 3, but throughout John's gospel, is Jesus teaches what he knows from personal experience. You can go and look, and every time Jesus talks about what he knows from personal experience, as a member of the Godhead, the Trinity, this is significant to understand because what that means is what we believe as followers of Jesus is not first a matter of facts that we perceive, that we accumulate, that we synthesize about God. What we believe about God is first a matter of faith born out of the fact of who Jesus is. The facts Jesus reveals to us. This is our first reorientation from this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. And it's a reorientation because you and I, we tend to think of belief in terms of what we decide to know, what we perceive as true. However, the gospel proclaims, Jesus insists we are a people living in darkness. That is the predominant metaphor, right? We are a people living in darkness. Belief, therefore, is not so much about what we know then because we don't know as much as we think we know, right? Nicodemus, think about it in this passage. Look at the start. Nicodemus comes as a believer in what he knows, right? That's where this starts. He comes as a believer in what he knows, what he's figured out. But Jesus immediately has none of that. Jesus shares with Nicodemus what he knows, what he reveals as Christ. Nicodemus comes believing, as he says, Jesus is a teacher, a teacher who has come from God, because no one could do the things you are doing unless God were with him. That's what Nicodemus perceives. That's the limit of what he perceives. But Jesus reveals he is more than a teacher from God, more than someone whom God is with. Jesus testifies to Nicodemus that he is Emmanuel, God with us. Listen, he says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. The authority that we hear about all the time in the scriptures, do you remember whenever Jesus teaches how the people always say, no one has taught with such authority? The authority with which Jesus teaches comes not just from being a great rabbi. That's what everybody perceives. This is an amazing teacher. But that authority that everyone's blown away by doesn't come just from Jesus being a great rabbi, a scholar of the scriptures. No, Jesus bears unique witness not only to the words of scripture, but the spirit behind the words. Jesus is, as we rightly call him this time of year, the word made flesh. The word made flesh who dwells among us. So in this first reorientation, I want you to think about this. We may come sometimes, like Nicodemus, with some knowledge on our part, with some assessment, with some conclusions about who God is, what God is about. But when we encounter the living God, when God reveals himself to us, 
we all of a sudden realize the darkness in our lives, the limit of our understanding. And again, there's a reason why this time of year and others, we call Jesus the light in the darkness. Jesus is the light of understanding. Jesus is the light of revelation, casting away the darkness of our ignorance, the limitations of our thinking, the limitations of our perceptions, the limitations of our belief. Jesus enlightens us. He pierces the darkness for all to know the way, the truth, and the life. He enlightens all who long to see, not just in part, but in full. No longer through a glass darkly, but through the complete technicolor, if you will, of the incarnation. The light of God, the light that is Christ, comes down to lift us up into the light of divine understanding. As Jesus himself puts it here, Jesus comes not only to reveal to us the truth behind within earthly things, Jesus unveils heavenly things, the ultimate will and purposes of God. So my friends, what we believe about God is not about what we know on our own. What we believe about God is about what God reveals to us through the testimony, the witness of Jesus Christ. That's the first insight. And it leads right into the second insight I want us to take away from this conversation. That if what we believe about God is what God reveals to us through the testimony and witness of Jesus Christ, that means our belief is a process, a relationship rather than a formula. And this is the second reorientation. Our belief is a process, a relationship, rather than a formula. I've talked about this a lot, about how I think that born again, which is what is translated in most of your Bibles, is not the best translation of what Jesus says here. And a big reason why I feel that way, that born again is not the best translation of what Jesus says to Nicodemus, is because of how badly we have misconstrued what Jesus is trying to reveal to us. What's that saying, a, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing? We've taken a little bit of knowledge that Jesus gives us here, and we've morphed it. We've made the gospel into a kind of salvation formula. We've talked about this before. Believe Jesus died for your sins, proclaim Christ as your personal Savior, and you're right with God forever. You're saved, you're going to heaven, done deal. Born again has become a ticket to heaven, packaged and sold to a hungry generation, and many of us have bought it hook, line, and sinker at least for a while. You ever think about this? Lots of people were born again, right? Lots of people were born again as Christians because of this formula. But what's interesting as we look around is not, a man, not many followers of Jesus actually resulted. And that's th this disconnect between those who say they're born again Christians and those who are actually followers of Jesus. This disconnect explains what this, this gap that we see in the church, where there's this difference between what many people say they believe about Jesus and how they are actually living for Christ. This, again, is part of what the world sees, right? Is this Christian label doesn't match up with what following Jesus, what Jesus calls his followers to be about. And again, I think this can help us because the kind of belief Jesus is invoking here to Nicodemus, the kind of belief the gospel speaks of, the kind of belief the other disciples, Peter and Paul, later write about, is not a formula. It's not the calculation of a proof or an equation. It's not so much about dogma about God that is memorized and repeated. And for many of us, that's what we think belief is. The kind of belief Jesus is expressing here is not belief 
that's based upon things we memorize or repeat, the kind of belief Jesus is expressing here is belief that rests on a promise. A promise which we rely upon, not in a momentary decision for Christ or an occasional reaffirmation on a Sunday morning, but a promise we live into and out of until our last breath, until Jesus calls us home or returns in glory. If you're struggling with this distinction I'm making between belief in a formula versus belief in a relationship, I think it might help us to understand the distinction I'm getting at, this distinction about belief, if we consider the distinction between the two words apprehension and comprehension. Apprehension and comprehension. Some of you who are very savvy in terms of the English language actually know that apprehension and comprehension mean the same thing. They mean to understand. The difference between apprehension and comprehension is in the nuance of how a person understands something. Apprehension, let's start there, is where we are conscious about something, we're aware of it, but we fail to grasp its meaning. We fail to engage it beyond our awareness. A person can apprehend something, but he or she may fail to actually comprehend it. Because comprehension requires knowledge. Apprehension doesn't. Comprehension is a deeper form of understanding. A person receives and connects bits and pieces of information and puts it to use. So to help kind of tease this out, I've been kind of hard on the, with the formula language. To those of you who love math, let me express it in terms of math, in terms of a formula, okay? Apprehension is knowing the formula E equals MC squared. Comprehension is understanding why E equals MC squared and how to apply E equals MC squared, how to put that to use. Many of us, probably all of us, know that E equals MC squared, right? Show of hands who know why E equals MC squared <laughs> and how to put it to use. We got a couple people. Everyone else is like, I'm looking for you after the service. How does it, why is it this way and what does that have to do with my life? And people who know can tell you, right? They can say, let me point this out to you. That's the difference between apprehension and comprehension. Believing in God is more than relational, more than intellectual knowledge. It's relational knowledge. So if you're with me, believing in God as Jesus outlines it here is more than apprehending the idea of Jesus. It's more than apprehending, being aware of the story, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's more than being aware of the miracle of Christ's birth or the power of Christ's death and resurrection. You may be aware that Christ was born, that God came in the flesh in Jesus Christ. You may be aware that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Yes, I, I'm aware of it I, and I believe that. And you may be aware that Jesus rose from the dead, but believing in God is more than just being aware conscious of that. Believing in God is about comprehending the character and will of God. It's about a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, following his life and thereby understanding his death, trusting in his resurrection, and recognizing his ongoing presence with us through the Holy Spirit. That kind of relationship that Jesus is pointing to is the experience of a lifetime. It takes a lifetime, not a formula for salvation that encompasses a three-minute prayer. To make this even more simple, it's not about what you know when it comes to God. It's about who you know. Now, I want to be fair. As I've put this insight out to you, I want to push back in terms of the text because I've quoted different parts of the passage today, but I've ignored one part to this point. 
And, and I think that it might push back against what I've just said. So let's play that out. My point is, Jesus goes on to tell Nicodemus, it's like the last verse that in the passage we read today. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, if you hear what Jesus just said to Nicodemus, despite what I just said, that sounds a lot like a formula, doesn't it? Right? That sounds like a formula. You know, okay, this is what happened. Do this, and then this happens. A, equal, a plus B equals C, or 1 plus 1 equals 2. But I want to give you a little more insight into what Jesus is talking about here. For those of you who may remember, Jesus in this moment is referencing an incident recorded in Numbers chapter 21. What happens in Numbers 21 is traveling in the wilderness, through the wilderness, the Israelites have gotten themselves into some trouble. And all of a sudden they find themselves attacked by a slew of venomous serpents. And as the snake bites just keep on coming in Numbers chapter 21, and the dead bodies are starting to pile up, the people cry out to God via Moses. And so God commands Moses to make a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and thereafter, whoever looks up to the, up to the bronze snake on the pole lives, even if they get bit by one of the deadly snakes. Now, I'm telling you that story, this still sounds like a formula, right? Okay, build the snake. If you look up to the snake, you live. You don't look up there, you die. Sounds like a formula. But the deeper context of the story that I've just shared with you that Jesus points to is not an isolated incident. What's happening, what Jesus is pointing to is an ongoing tension in the relationship between God and his people, Israel. Again, jogging your memory, all throughout their wilderness journey, not just in Numbers 21, all throughout their wilderness journey, the Israelites grumbled and complained against God, right? No food, no water, it isn't safe, it's dangerous, we'll never get there. And if you remember, every time the Lord would provide for the people, and the people would be fine for the moment, until the next time they freaked out. This incident, the one Jesus is pointing to, isn't about a formula. It's a snapshot of a relationship. In many ways, it's the culmination of a defining moment in that relationship. The people in Numbers 21 are wandering in the wilderness, again by their own doing, and they just revolt. That's what happens. They revolt. They quit on God. They actually try to break up with God and say, we wish you had left us in Egypt and stayed out of our lives. And so, in Numbers 21, it is God who sends the snakes. And it is the Lord who provides the bronze snake on the pole. God's not creating a formula for salvation as much here as he's trying to change the pattern of relationship between himself and his people. His choice of snakes, by the way, is not coincidental. It harkens back to the beginning, right? To the garden, to the worst snake bite ever. God is in essence saying to his people in this incident in Numbers 21, stop focusing on the stuff. Stop treating me like a vending machine. We're in a relationship here. I've rescued you from slavery. I've brought you through sea on dry land. I've given you water to drink in the desert. I've fed you with manna, bread from heaven. I've been carrying you for 40 years. The clothes you've been wearing all that time haven't worn out. Did you notice? But don't believe in the provisions. Believe in the provider. Look at those snakes on the ground. Apart from me, you're dead. And now look up at the snake on the pole. With me, you can be healed. You can live. You can have eternal life. You can be healed of even that which seeks to take you out. Are you seeing this? 
Are you getting what I'm grasping at here? The kind of belief Jesus is talking about here is being awakened to the presence of God the Father in the world. Being awakened to the presence of God the Father in the world and engaging and pursuing that relationship through following Christ and living by the Spirit. Jesus comes right out and says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is saying, if we take the earthly things for granted, the daily basic provisions in our life, without an acknowledgement, without a recognition, without engaging the relationship with God, if we do that, how can we possibly handle, comprehend, apprehend the bigger things of the Lord's revelation of our purpose, his empowerment of our destiny, the transformation of our character. Now, you and I sit here, and we may not have turned our, up our noses against manna or complained about water in the desert. But let me ask you, is it so different when we look in our refrigerator and our pantry, our refrigerator and our pantry that for all of us would probably be the envy of many in this world, is it any different when we open up our refrigerator and our pantry and go, there's nothing to eat? Are we not as blind as the people in the wilderness? Not as blind to all the blessings the Lord showers upon us, even in hard times and difficulty? Are we not blind to the health we do have? Are we not at times take for granted the friends and family that do surround us? Do we not at times have a complete blind spot about our ability to work, to go to school and learn that we're not waking up in a war zone, that we're breathing another breath of air? How many times have I cried out to God for help, right? And I got the help I needed, and I kept close to God for a spell, and then I went right back to the mantra, right? What have you done for me lately? What good are you anyway, God? It's easy. It's easy to treat God like a vending machine. It's easy to treat God like Santa Claus, an old man who shows up once a year, whose lap we'll sit on and talk to, and we'll believe in so long as he gives us everything on our list. Believing in God is not about believing in a formula. If you're naughty, you get coal. If you're nice, you get presents. Because while we were yet still sinners, God came down. Christ was born for us. Christ died for us. Christ is risen for us. Believing in God is about a relationship, not a vending machine, not a secret Santa. And my friends, there's good news in this realization. There's good news in this insight that belief in God is a process. Because that means we don't have to understand everything. We don't have to immediately comprehend everything about the person of God in Christ. Just like any other relationship, there's room for doubt there's room for uncertainty, there's room for curiosity, there's room for conviction, and yes, there's even room for a little complaining. Like any other relationship we engage, our knowledge and our understanding of that person grows and deepens. Consider Nicodemus' relationship with Jesus here. If we're honest, if this story wasn't told to us, if we were to write this story, let's all be real, right? If we were to write this story, we'd have Nicodemus praying the Jesus prayer right now, right? I mean, we'd say, okay, Nicodemus, just repeat after me, say this prayer, we'll throw some water on you and you're good to go. And he'd give his life to Christ, he'd be saved right here, that would be a neat, cleaner ending, right? That'd be awesome. That would just be just the way we'd, we'd, we'd tell it. But the thing is, this isn't about how we tell it. This is about how it is. 
And the thing is, believing in a relationship rather than a formula is a messier affair. It's not neat and tidy, is it? Nicodemus does not respond to Jesus here. It's quite disturbing, actually. His last words in this chapter, you heard him, are a question. That's the last thing he says, a question. How can this be? Jesus answers, and Nicodemus just fades into the background of John's gospel for a few chapters. Off stage left. But here it is. If we look at the whole of John's gospel, and this is so interesting to me, we see what I'm pointing to. Belief in God understood in the context of a relationship rather than a formula. When we look at it that way, actions speak louder than words. Because the next time we meet Nicodemus after this encounter, the next time we meet him is in chapter 7 of John. And if you don't remember chapter 7, it's okay. I'll tell you about it. The Sanhedrin, a group of which Nicodemus is a part, he's a member, they try to have Jesus arrested and it doesn't work out for them and they're really upset about it and they're going to try again. And surprisingly, Nicodemus alone speaks up and defends Jesus. The next time we meet Nicodemus in the Gospel of John is all the way at the end, chapter 19. Jesus is dead. And Nicodemus, I love this. Nicodemus, the man who once waited in the shadows, right? The man who came to Jesus in the night, now, before the light of day, follows him as he seeks to prepare Jesus' body for burial. What we witness in the Gospel of John in those little snippets is Nicodemus' belief in Jesus is a process, not a formula. Nicodemus' belief in Jesus comes out of a relationship that begins with this conversation and goes all the way through facing danger and ridicule to offering love in a practical way, to following Jesus more closely in the end than the other vocal disciples who are still hiding. This is an encouragement for those of you who maybe don't have it all together, who maybe think you don't understand everything, Believing in God doesn't mean you have to understand everything. Believing in God just means you have to be willing to continue to let God reveal to you who he is, who you are, and what he's doing in your life and in this world. Remember, don't forget this. To enter into this relationship that we've just pointed to that Nicodemus has with Jesus, Nicodemus had to be born anew. He had to be born from, from above. So putting our two insights together, Nicodemus didn't muster his belief in God and Christ on his own. He didn't come up with it on his own. He needed Jesus' testimony. He needed for Christ to open his mind and his heart to this belief. And Jesus doesn't ask Nicodemus to believe in some formula for salvation. Jesus isn't calling Nicodemus here to view the kingdom of God from a different angle. Nicodemus isn't being asked to take a fresh look at a familiar concept. Nicodemus is being encouraged to comprehend something contrary to what he had learned and was teaching, to what he thought he knew. To what he thought he knew. And Jesus invites Nicodemus to respond to a relationship with God as Father. Jesus even lovingly teases the teacher, you've learned all you can, but you can't get this on your own. And for Jesus, what puts this all together as we've talked about what holds this sermon series together is for Jesus, the applicable metaphor for belief, for life, is birth. And it's this metaphor that isn't meant to be intellectually grasped, it's meant to be spiritually experienced. Ask yourself, is there any more passive act than being born? Is there any act in which an actor is more helpless? We can't birth ourselves. Being born physically is something that happened to you. 
completely out of your control. And Jesus says being spiritually born is no different. Our adoption as children into God's family, into his kingdom, is accomplished not of our own doing. Any more than our first birth, it's completely out of our control. And so we find Nicodemus here, just as Mary was asked by the angel Gabriel to surrender to a situation that made no sense in her knowledge and understanding, Nicodemus receives his own annunciation from Jesus. And so do we. So do you. So do I. And for those of you who've been waiting for the application, what do I do? How do I respond? Here it comes. Like Nicodemus, all we can contribute to this invitation is our availability and our dependence. All we can offer, like Mary, is our yes. Yes. All we have to do, all we can do, is say yes. At the start of each day, yes. In the thick of every moment, yes. In the face of each challenge, yes. In the aftermath of every season, yes. With our last dying breath, Yes. The boy in the Polar Express heard it right. All that is needed is to believe. But our belief in God is not about our initiative. It's about his revelation. Believing in God is not about having a formula. It's about responding to a relationship. Our belief in God in Christ is not just praying a single prayer and then going our own way and forgetting about Jesus for the rest of our lives. Our belief in God is embracing Jesus with such radical dependence upon him that we stake our lives on the truth, the reality of that relationship. We let go of what we think we know we confess what we don't know and we rest in the assurance of the one who knows us, who purposes for us to know him. When I was a kid, I started questioning whether or not Santa was real. And I asked my mother one evening, this is the kind of kid I was, I just kind of put it out there, is Santa real? And she simply said, I'll never forget this, of course he's real. He is real for you as long as you choose to believe. You see, this is the thing. Santa and all the other Christmas players that we've conjured up, Santa relies on our power, believing in him. Every story, right? Santa doesn't have any power without our belief. My friends, the good news of the gospel, the gospel of God is God doesn't rely, doesn't depend on us believing in him. God doesn't need us to believe in him to have power. God seeks to give us power, his power, because he believes in us. He believes in us. So you see, Christmas is not do I believe enough Christmas is, do I know the God who believes in me? Christmas is about the God who believes in me even when I lose faith in myself. Christmas is about the God who believes in you even when others may have their doubts. Christmas is about the God who in Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, first a vulnerable infant, and then a sacrificial lamb. The God who in Christ went to the cross and through the grave because he believes in us. So let's not settle. 
we got, two weeks left? How many days is it? We're, you know, it's the 11th, what we got? Two weeks, 14 days. Let's not merely settle for believing in a day. The formula for a holiday, let's believe in a person. The one who makes Christmas possible, not just once a year, so you got more than 14 days, but every day. Let's be relieved, are you feeling it, of the frantic burden to try to make Christmas mean something. Instead, let us come and adore him. Let us receive the one who believes in us, who enables us to believe, who gives meaning not only to our Christmases, but to our whole lives as well. Amen.